Good morning to you who are here. Good morning to you who are elsewhere. What is true of everybody in this room and is true of everybody that is not in this room that is yet still observing what we're doing here and participating is that all of us deal with guilt. And we all do something with it. We struggle with it. Even like a couple of these ways. What do you want from me? I want you to be yourself. You know, I'll tell you, boy, guilt is like a bag of bricks. All you got to do is set it down. I struggle with God so much because I can't forgive myself. And I don't want, really want to right now. I can live with it, but I can't forgive myself. And sometimes I don't want to believe in a God that could forgive me. Along with that, there's a, a song that Marty Kohlmeyer told me about last week by The Who. It's called Behind Blue Eyes. It's written from the perspective of a villain. It was going to be a, a follow-up to the rock opera Tommy. And the villain sings at the beginning of the song, No one knows what it's like to be hated, to be faded, to telling only lies. Behind blue eyes, no one knows what it's like to be hated, to be faded, to be telling only lies. Everybody in this room and everybody who has a pulse at some point will do something that they regret for which there will be remorse. And attached to that is a whole set of questions about what do we do with it? We all do something with it. What should we do with it? Some will try to ignore it, kind of repress it. I just want to leave it out. I don't want to think about it, but that's, that's, one, that's one strategy. Another will try to rationalize it away and, and find all number of things to explain why they did what they did. And it's not as if to say that, that the things that we regret don't have a certain complexity to them, but, but many times we seek to rationalize them away as if, well, it's just somebody else's problem. And still others will, will be eaten by it and, and burned by it, and, and unless something else intervenes, they'll be swallowed by it. And maybe you can relate to any one of these strategies. We've all got one. We all do something when it comes to the things that we regret. And the question is, what do we do when we've blown it? Because we all have or all will. There are strategies out there. What should ours be? We have been listening to Israel's music this summer. The songs that they would sing. And it's covered quite a range of experience, of human experience. And this morning, the psalmist turns his eye, turns his songwriting to the question of our error, of our own vice. And he's come to tell us things that we might do as a people when we've blown it. And I think my, maybe by way of application here on the front end of the sermon, for those of you who are the bards and the poets and the songwriters, I would love for you to take whatever I might say to you today and turn it into something a little bit more poetic than the straightforward way in which I'll speak of it. The reason that we read the parable of the two sons at the beginning of this worship is that while Psalm 130 stands on its own, 
I think it will really help for us to understand what Psalm 130 is saying when we see it in the context of that most famous parable. So that's why we did that, and we'll refer to it often. But in listening to this very short psalm, I think we're going to hear three things that we need to remember, and then the only way to respond. Three things we must remember, and then one way and the only way to respond. So if you're able, I wonder if you might stand to hear Psalm 130. Our central text for today is found in Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Is it not your experience that when you have been offended or harmed or hurt and whoever has done that to you seeks to want to try to fix it really quickly and they want to start saying stuff and maybe it's your experience that when you hear those kinds of really quick maybe even in your mind feeble apologies you just want to say just be quiet i don't want i really don't want to hear it right now just save it just just save it okay maybe maybe you felt that when you've been so deeply wrong you you, you feel like you want to walk out of the room that that you're licking your wounds here and 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 their attempt to want to try to fix it quickly it, it almost feels like you know lemon juice on your paper cut. Maybe you've had that experience. Turn the tables then. Let's imagine that you're the one that has stepped in it, that has done wrong by someone deeply. Maybe, maybe in a moment like that you understand why you might get why they want to kind of close themselves off to you, why, why in a sense, maybe to put it too dramatically, they, they prefer to be deaf to you. They just don't want to hear it. In perhaps what is the most famous psalm of, of confession that is attributed or associated with David, after we know of David's sin after sin after sin, he, he says, quite frankly, that for all the sins that we know of, he says, against you, against you only, Lord, have I sinned. He sinned against a woman. He, he, he sinned against a couple uh, he, he sinned against one of his adjuncts. But in all of that, he first of all sinned against the Lord. And if that is true, that every sin that you and I have ever committed, everything that I have done against you or against someone else, if it was first a high-handed act against the Lord, then maybe there's a part of us that thinks that God would prefer to, if you will, kind of get up and leave the room and be deaf to you. And here's why I have really good news for you this morning, friends. 
And it's not my word, it's from the psalmist. And the first thing that he and I, that he and I want you to remember when you've blown it is this. God is not deaf to your cries for mercy. He will not simply get up out of the room, close his ears, and pretend that you're not even talking. No matter what your regret is. And you heard him say that in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist is making that prayer because he believes the Lord will hear and does not grow deaf no matter how far into the pit of despair he has dug for himself. We don't know what he has done. The psalmist doesn't tell that. We just know that he's full of regret and he might think that God turns away. Instead, he is here to proclaim to Israel and to you, God hears. God hears that and attends to you. The younger son in the parable that you heard at the beginning of a worship service, he's full of regret. He has squandered the share of the inheritance that he prematurely demanded from his father as an act of high-handed disrespect and defamation. He demanded that from his father and he slinks back and maybe he only expects maybe maybe derision would be a good thing for him maybe he'd be just glad to hear a father his father hear an angry word from him but probably there's more of him that thinks that his father will not even hear him that he will let some other lieutenant come out and meet his son and yet the father runs to him and though the younger son might have thought his father wouldn't even hear him, the father running to him confirms to him that not only will he hear him, he will embrace him. He does not think it will happen. Why else does he prepare the speech? Why else does he say, you know, father, I'll, I'll just be a hired hand for you, unless he thought that the father would not hear him. And yet, friends, here is the father. God does not grow deaf to us in the pit of our despair of what we've done. He doesn't. God is not like us. If we think he turns away, then you and I will look for some other solution to our guilt. We will come up with some other strategy to help to just to go on, and I will just say to you that any other strategy that you might choose will not be for your good. And that is why the first thing that you and I need to remember that needs to become some sort of poetic line, just like what the psalmist has written here in Psalm 130, is that God does not grow deaf to your cries for mercy. That's the first thing you have to remember. The second thing has two parts. And it's what you heard in verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He's talking about everything that you might say for which you have regret. Everything. That if it were all cataloged and considered, the psalmist is saying, in light of who God is and His holiness, there is no chance of being welcomed by Him. There is no possibility that you will enter into His presence. And at risk of using a very trivial illustration, if you saw Loki, that came out recently, 
Loki has been captured by what is called the, the, the time authority, and um, they're trying to verify that he's in fact the true Loki. And so he steps into this, you know, a basement with this guy that's sitting behind a desk, and the guy pushes before him this large stack of papers. And he says, sign here. And Loki says, what is this? He says, this is everything you've ever said. And he says, well, this is absurd. And then the printer goes off and out comes another printer and another piece of paper and says, this is absurd. <laughs> Sign here. And just to verify of who he really is, everything that he has said is open to review and to scrutiny and a decision is being made on the basis of what he is taking ownership for. Friends, just imagine for a moment, imagine if everything you had ever said you would have to take responsibility for. Every single word. Let's just not even talk about things that you've done or even things that you've felt. Just everything that you said. Imagine that some decision would be made on the basis of everything that has come from your mouth. It should lead you to shudder. In other places in Scripture, it speaks of sin including the sins of a tongue, as a debt, a debt that you incur. Imagine if you're applying for a loan. You go to a bank, you filled out the application, you present it to the loan officer, they call you to, his de- they call you to their desk, they have you sit down, they offer you a Keurig, and then they begin to go over your application, and there on your application, it says that you have a certain amount of debt, and the debt is on the order of a billion dollars. <laughs> and you've come to ask for a loan, right? Before the loan officer has a chance to count all the zeros behind that listing of your debt, they're going to say, I'm sorry, sir, I can't help you. Application rejected. It's nothing personal. It's just the nature of, of what you're asking for in light of where you've come from and, and what you bring with you into this conversation, this transaction. It's an incompatibility between what you seek and who you are. Beloved, I must remind myself as I must remind you, the holiness of God is not a show. It is not a pretense. He, he does not ignore in himself what he commands of you and of me. He is holy. He is unlike us. He is high and lifted up. He is perfect in every way. And he is worthy of all honor and respect and obedience. And we hear that and, and we might respond in any number of ways. We, we might we might rationalize why we do what we do. You ever saw, this is a hard film, I'm not sure I may be recommending it, but if you ever saw Cider House Rules, there's Delroy, and kind of at what is at the emotional apex of the film, he, he says, in, in reference to a list that's posted on, the, on the, the house, the Cider House, he says, the person who made these rules, he don't live here. In other words, he doesn't get me. He doesn't know this world. He doesn't know where I'm from. So those rules, they have, they have no basis here. And you know what? You and I can do that. We, we can read what we find in here and we think, God doesn't understand us. He's not been here. He doesn't, he's not from here, we might say to ourselves. You can try to rationalize that away, and yet you can't. 
if you don't rationalize it away, maybe you just resent him. Maybe you just think God is, is this very mean-spirited sort of deity that just sort of likes to go, gotcha! Nailed you again. Like the guy that's trying to, you know, like the, tra- the cop that's trying to get the quota for the number of, you know, traffic tickets he gets in the day. I've got, ha <laughs> ha! Maybe you think that. And if you do, I would argue that that is a faulty view of sin. You might think of sin as just rules that you break. But what if you thought of sin as the act of putting salt into soil? What does salt do to soil? It makes it unable to support life. Sin is not merely a violation of an idea or some sort of virtue that exists out here in the ether. It's actually a violation of something that is in him, and it's a violation of life. That's one way of thinking of it. Many years ago, there was a computer scientist professor by the name of Randy Pau. She wrote a book called The Last Lecture. He wrote it as he was uh, uh, dying, and it, it, it paid homage to to his, his life in the classroom as a professor. And, and he told the story of when he was on a football team as a young man. And uh, one day the coach just kind of kept riding him, kept riding him with doing this drill, doing this drill, doing this drill. And at the end of the day, there's this moment where he's walking off the field and the, and his, the assistant coach says, Coach Graham rode you pretty hard, didn't he? He said, I could barely muster, yeah. That's a good thing, the assistant told me. When you're screwing up and nobody says anything to you anymore, it means they've given up on you. For God to be indifferent to sin, which the psalmist is saying is is not true. God is not indifferent to our sin. That should, in our ears, be the highest compliment. That he would seek to call out, expose, even fiercely, that which is contrary to the life that he offers us. Because if he didn't, it would mean he had given up on us, and he has not. God is not indifferent to our sin. The younger son, he didn't act well. He did offend his father. He did waste what he had been given out of that inheritance. And to pretend otherwise does not do him any good. And, and therefore the older son who, who calls out everything that his younger brother has done, he's not wrong. Nothing that the older son says of his younger brother is inaccurate. But what the older son misses is the other side of the truth of his father. He's only, he's only in that moment acknowledging one part of the father's truth. He's only acknowledging one side of the story. And that's why the second thing that the psalmist is out to tell us when we've blown it, not, it's, it's, there's two parts to it. The first is God is not indifferent to our sin. But the other part of that second idea is that he is also not unwilling to forgive. He is not indifferent to our sin. He is not unwilling to forgive. The psalmist begins in a pit of despair, of regret, of whatever it might be, and he is out to say to us that God will not keep you there. The father in the parable was insulted, he was defrauded. He was treated in a way that he did not deserve. 
And yet, as you see in the embrace that Rembrandt creates, and if you ever read Henry Nouwen's book, um, The Return of the Prodigal Son, in which he goes to the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Russia, and sits before the original of Rembrandt's piece. It's eight feet. I've seen it. It's, it's mammoth. And, and he somehow he got permission to sit up a chair and close off the room and just meditate on it for days. And he writes a book after it. And he says, just all the intricacies and the peculiarities of that, of that one painting speaks so much about not only the parable, but of God. In the embrace of the father of the son who was defrauded and detested and defamed before him, in that is forgiveness. That's God's forgiveness. And so I say to you this day, if you believe in God or if you do not, this is God. This is the God in whose name we gather this day. This is the God in whose name we worship this day. This God. Whatever other versions that you may have brought into this room, whatever versions you might be kicking or screaming against, this is him. He is not indifferent to your sin. He is not unwilling to forgive. Now, as soon as I say that, as I meditated upon this text, I feel it necessary to speak a certain sidebar. Because there are those of you in this room, or those of you who are watching, who will hear that, and rather it be a word of comfort, it might even to be a word of outrage. Why? Because maybe you've been harmed. Maybe you've been abused. Maybe you've been mistreated. Maybe you've been defrauded. To hear that God is willing to forgive, at some level you think, well, okay, that's good in, in the instance that I might need it, but, but to, to hear that your abuser in your mind, you might think that they're just sort of getting off on a technicality. What do you do? How are you to hear this word? I would understand your reflexive impulse to perhaps chafe at the idea that God is, to hear that God is not unwilling to forgive if you've been harmed. And that's why I would say to you, look very carefully at what it says there in verse 4. There's an intention behind the forgiveness. And it's more than just wiping the slate clean. It says in verse 4, With you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. What does the forgiveness intend? Not simply a, a wiping of the slate clean, but of a transformation of the heart. Of something to be awakened and exposed in the one who has harmed. That they might come to an awakening of something more than just that God is forgiving. But that God is to be feared. And if you were with us recently, you remember that fear of God has a very multifaceted composition to it. And sometimes it's understanding a brilliance that you know you will never attain. That's having the fear of God. At other times, it's being before the presence of a beauty that you would dare not dirty or sully. That's having the fear of the Lord. But another aspect of the fear of the Lord is realizing that there is a power and a strength to God that you do not want to get on the wrong side of. What does his forgiveness mean to engender in those who call themselves forgiven a right fear of the Lord that they might be transformed? If you've been harmed, you might be, want to be the person who wants to sacrifice them 
But what the forgiveness of the Lord is meant to create in those who receive it is a fear that leads to a remorse and a new appreciation for what is good and true. And if you believe that about the way in which forgiveness is meant to come and what effect it's meant to have, then in your own struggle to learn how to forgive, and it is a struggle, that perhaps if you believe that's where it is intended, that maybe that allows you to discover not only the ability to forgive, but also even the possibility, as remote as it may seem in the moment, to trust them again. God is not indifferent to our sin. He is not unwilling to forgive. And there's one last thing that the psalmist is out to tell us. And it has something to do with the word of assurance. And that that word of assurance that comes from God in the midst of our forgiveness or in the midst of our desire for forgiveness, that that is worth waiting for. It's a little bit dangerous to imagine parts of the psalm, or rather of the parable, that are not included in its description. But I, I don't think it's so far off the mark to imagine what was it like between the moment in which the younger son has the sort of epiphany that life is not what he thought it was, and he maybe could go back and live as a hired hand, that, between that moment and, and actually encountering his father again. You ever, when you were a kid, you went to the doctor's office? Like, that was the longest trip ever. The, 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 the walk from the car <laughs> to the receptionist window, you, like, it was like you were carrying wood. Um, it's just this heavy burden, and it's this long walk. And for the younger son, between the moment in which he leaves the, you know, where the pigs are eating to the point in which he sees his father, it was probably a very long walk. And what he wondered, and maybe what there was a, still a, a kernel of hope in him that wondered, would his father ever give to him a word of welcome? There was something in him that wanted to wait for that. If you had the good fortune of having a good parent, if, if you sensed their love and, and, and you reveled in their kindness to you, and if at any point you really harmed them or hurt them or spoke poorly of them or mistreated them or were unkind to them, there, there was a part of you in the midst of, of you feeling bad over what you did over this parent whom you love that you were just waiting, waiting for them to say, it's, it's okay, honey, it's okay. You, you would wait forever for that for them just to say, it's, it's okay. The psalmist, it's the hardest part of the psalm, and he says, I will wait in verses 5 and 6. I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word. I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. What is he talking about there? What is, waiting for what? And what is this thing about watchmen? Look, in Israel, there, there is no night glasses. There was no infrared sighting. There are no drones. Um, there, there is... There's no um, you know, ability to watch people coming from a distance to protect your... your there's no gated community, <laughs> right? It was. I guess there was gated, right? But it's not in the way you think of it. And therefore, because you didn't have all that stuff to protect your city, what'd you have? You had watchmen. You had people on the wall at night between 9 and 12, 12 and 3, 3 and 6, three watches, three watches of the night. They're all scanning the horizon, and they're all just praying, probably literally, please, marauders, let you come another night when I'm off. <laughs> Let it be some other one. And, and they're desperately waiting for the sun to peek over the horizon because when daylight comes, and then, then marauders have accountability. Then, then people that would come and lay siege to your, to your city would, would have you know, a certain measure of deterrent. 
Daylight meant you're off and I can go to bed and it's somebody else's problem now. They're waiting for the break of day. And I think the psalmist is out to tell us when it comes to waiting for the word of assurance, you'll do anything to wait for that break of day. The psalmist is doing here what the older son should have done for his younger brother in the parable. Can you imagine a different parable, which we would never be talking about anymore, if it had happened this way? This would be how it should have gone, how it should have ended, right? The older son. Imagine the older son knowing what the younger son has done and, and getting some sort of message that the younger son is on his way back in, in great regret for what he's done. Imagine the older son Rather than his father being the one to run out, maybe imagine the older son dispatching himself and going out into the wilderness and finding his younger brother and catching up with him and their eyes meet and, and the younger son's eyes are on the ground because he doesn't even want to take the eyes of his older brother and the older brother looks him in the eye and he goes, son, brother, you blew it. But we have a good father. Come home. The psalmist is being for Israel what that older brother should have been for his younger brother. You blew it. Oh my gosh, you blew it. But we have a good father. That is what the psalmist is doing for Israel. And the question is, who will do that for us? I will tell you, the one who told the parable in verse 7 of this psalm, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now, wait a minute. He was talking about forgiveness in verse 3. All of a sudden, he's talking about redemption. What's that about? Redemption, from an Old Testament point of view, you, you go redeem a coupon. You go redeem this. You, what are you, you're making a purchase. That's what a redemption is. And in every setting in the Old Testament, the use of the word redemption was all about, I'm going to give you this goat for, for that you know, calf, or I will you know, give you this grain for this other thing that I want. That's a redemption. You're redeeming it. You're purchasing it. And in this setting alone is redemption referred to as redeeming sin. That a purchase is being made to forgive you of your sin. And when you hear the psalmist say, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities, all of them, those who first heard the psalm would have to wonder themselves, how can he do all of them? I will tell you how he can do all of them. He did all of them in the one who told the parable of the two sons. The one who told you and me the parable is the one who made a purchase who came to redeem us, to buy us freedom from who we are and what we have done, and he has done so at his own cost. He's the redeemer. And he doesn't pay with grain, he pays with blood. And this is what we call the gospel. That everything that you regret and everything that you realize that you really just blew it, and, and maybe what even frightens you more is what that might reveal about your inner heart and the way that you've blown it that the one who told this parable is the one who made a purchase at his own cost, at his own blood, that you would be freed from your iniquities. That's how he did it. And therefore, friends, if it is true that God does not grow deaf 
to your cries of mercy. If it is true that he is not indifferent to your sin, nor he's unwilling to forgive, and if it is true that it is worth waiting for that word of assurance through the Son who is our Lord, then if that is true, then there is but one response for us. Repent. Repent. Turn away from what he may lead you to discover you know does not befit his honor or your good. And repent, remembering these things and remembering the one who at his own cost died to make you his own and who therefore gave you his spirit both to awaken you to what is good and to turn you away from what is nothing more than salt in the soil. This is our God. At the end of that song from The Who, you hear this. If I swallow anything evil, put your finger down my throat. And if I shiver, please give me a blanket, keep me warm, let me wear your coat. I bet Roger Daltrey didn't know it, but that sure sounds like what Jesus says. He takes the poison and he clothes us in our righteousness. And that's what we believe to be the gospel. And that is what the psalmist is calling us to today. When you've blown it, repent into his love. We're going to sing something here in just a moment that represents our own ability to confess, but also to be reminded that there is a pardon available to any who would receive it. So let's pray. Father, you who are not like us and who therefore hear us even when we have harmed and run afoul of what it means to be good. Father, you who, who do not look lightly at sin but who acts mightily in order to forgive, renew. Father, whatever might be plaguing us this day, for whomever we may have an improper hatred with whatever we might be holding so tightly to that it has become our God in whatever way we are so convinced of our own truth and our own righteousness that we only look with derision at those with whom we disagree. Oh, Father, if any of those or something else is something that would lead us into a pit of despair if only we were to gather how depth of sin it is. Father, help us to believe that you're good, that you hear, that you call, that you forgive, and then in all of it, it confirms one thing, your love. In Jesus' name, amen. On the days when it's hard, that's why we come here to be reminded. And there's no shame in knowing and acknowledging that you need to be reminded. So go with this word of benediction, beloved. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The love and forgiveness of the Lord be with you all. Go in peace.